for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pause and pray right there. Heavenly Father, we pray for your divine assistance. Indeed, we pray for your divine sovereignty to take um, possession of this time, Lord, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Help us to hear, help us to discern. We are dealing with the eternal word of God and help us to approach it with um, the proper respect and reverence in our heart, but also um, help us just to connect to your word in a way that is profoundly personal and profoundly corporate. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this story is well known to all of us. As we begin taking a look at it this morning, um, let's just begin by noticing what the problem is that Jesus is addressing in the parable. The parable, of course, is told to address a specific problem or to give a specific warning. And we see in verse 9 there what the, what the specific problem or issue that Jesus is, is addressing. We see that he is, first of all, addressing a heart attitude. He told this parable to some who did what? They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So there's a heart attitude, so this vertical uh, attitude towards God that these individuals that Jesus is addressing are trusting in their own righteousness or they're trusting in themselves that they are righteous. But then that also, that heart attitude or that stance that they take in their hearts towards God is resulting in a certain vertical issue. By that I mean vertical towards other people. Horizontally towards God, there's this issue, there's this dysfunction in their horizontal relationship, and it's resulting in a dysfunction in their... Um, I'm saying that backwards. Yeah. <laughs> there's this vertical dysfunction. Vertical's up and down, right? Horizontal is... Yes. Yeah. Yes. So there's this vertical dysfunction between themselves and God that they are thinking of themselves as, as righteous in themselves and it's resulting in this horizontal dysfunction between themselves and others. That's why everybody's looking at me kind of funny. Aren't you? Um, and so the horizontal issue is that they are treating others with contempt. And we won't take long to, to make note of this, but just let's just notice this in passing that a dysfunction in their relationship to God results in a dysfunction in their relationship to other people. 
And that is something that's consistent across the board that we can always see. When we have dysfunction in our relationship with God, it will evidence itself in dysfunction towards other people. Or to state it in the reverse, when we see conflict between people, conflict between uh, co-workers or family members or uh, spouses, then there's always a root in there somewhere that points us to a dysfunction in our relationship to God. Were our relationship to God without um, issue, without problem, were we in proper relationship to God, then we would have no conflicts with, with others in the relationships of our life. That's not to say there would be no interpersonal conflict. As long as sin exists in the world, there will be conflict. But that is to say that the, the root cause of our interpersonal conflict is always sin in our hearts, in someone's heart, somewhere along the line. So we see that, again, we don't want to take too much time, but we see that that uh, there's this dysfunction in how they think of themselves towards God, and it is resulting in how they are treating others. They're treating others with contempt. So that's the problem. That's the issue that Jesus wishes to address. And he's going to address this in the parable beginning from verse 10. And what he's going to do in this parable is he is going to make a very precise distinction between two ways of thinking about our relationship to God. And the distinction is very precise, and it's going to be a little bit technical. But um, as we think through this distinction that Jesus is going to make, hopefully the passage will lend itself to us in such a way that we can see that not only is this distinction an important one, but it is an absolutely crucial distinction to make. It is a vital distinction to make. Oftentimes we think of this parable as just simply an illustration of a prideful person praying uh, as opposed to a humble person praying. But the, the lesson that Jesus has for us in this is far more substantial than that and it's far more critical and important to our understanding of our salvation than, than just that. So this is a very precise distinction. We already know immediately that Jesus is telling a story here contrasting a Pharisee and a tax collector. So we know immediately out of the gate that this is the most drastic, radical of a contrast that Jesus could make. The Pharisee was considered to be the most holy, the closest to God that one could be short of being a Levitical priest. So outside of the priesthood, the Pharisee was considered to be the one that was the closest to God or the holiest. And Jesus is contrasting that with what is considered to be the most unholy uh, in, in the culture of that day, which would be having a tax collector. We know um, the situation with tax collectors, how they were considered to be traitors, how they were considered to be um, immoral, and um, typically those, um, those uh, uh, views of tax collectors were based in reality because they were typically a very immoral um, type of trade that they were in. So Jesus is making a, the most radical of contrasts. Jesus' listeners would have been shocked as they heard the lesson that Jesus arrives at at the end to say, the one that you thought was the holiest was not the one that was justified before God. The one that you thought was the most immoral, that is the one that is justified before God. So Jesus would, Jesus' hearers would have been shocked to hear that. In the same way, we know we know where the story is going to go. So that aspect of the story is not going to shock us. But just as, as sort of a word of warning as we begin, um, let's not let's guard ourselves against thinking that we know where Jesus is going. 
Let's guard ourselves against thinking that Jesus is going to address this prideful heart in the Pharisee and the humble heart of the tax collector. I know where he's going. I understand this lesson. Let's resist that temptation um, because as we see where Jesus is going to go with this, we too might be shocked with what he has to say, with who he's going to say are the holy ones in God's eyes and who are the unholy or who are the justified and who are the, um, the not justified. Okay? So a few words as we begin there. Now let's jump into verse 10. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other tax, the other a tax collector. So there's the distinction. Jesus' hearers would immediately have been put into one mode of thinking, thinking here's a holy man going into the temple, and here's a very unholy man going into the temple. So one is a Pharisee, and the other is a tax collector. They're going into the temple to pray. The temple in Jesus' day held um, two daily services every day. Those services, one was at dawn, and the other was at 3 p.m., and in each of those services, the same thing happened each day. The service would begin um, in the, in the out, outside courtyard area, and it would begin with the sacrifice of a lamb. That lamb was sacrificed for the atonement of the sins of Israel, and then the blood of that lamb would have been sprinkled on the altar. After doing that, then the priest would have then entered into the temple, into the holy area, not the holy of holies. That was only the day of atonement. He would then enter into the holy area and he would then um, he would then uh, sprinkle the incense and he would trim the wicks of the lamps. While he was doing that, someone outside would then uh, read a psalm, read from one of the psalms, and then everyone assembled in the courtyard would then offer up their own prayers um, aloud uh, as, uh, or silently to themselves as they were gathered there in the courtyard. And then upon finishing offering the incense and trimming the wicks of the lamps, then the priest would come out and the service would be concluded. That happened every day at dawn and at 3 p.m. It's interesting that um, Luke also shows us this, interestingly enough, back in chapter 1. If you remember, remember Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist? That was his turn to do just that. And it's, it's probably worth it just to flip back to chapter 1 and just see verse uh, 18, I think it is. No, it's not verse 18. Verse 10, I'm sorry. Chapter 1, verse 10. So Zechariah is here performing his duty in the temple. It says, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So just an interesting note there that that's what Zechariah was doing. He was doing these daily services. It was his turn to do that. So that's the context of the two prayers that takes place. And the reason I go through that, just, as, just to uh, make sure that we are seeing in our mind's eye what's happening during these prayers, um, is because it's very important to know that this, all this takes place, these two prayers take place in the context of a lamb being sacrificed, of a, of a lamb that's being offered for the atonement of the sin of Israel. That's the context in which both of these prayers will take place. That'll, that'll be important for us to see a little bit later on. So they, one Pharisee and the other tax collector, they go up to the temple to pray. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus to God. And then we're going to hear his prayer after that. But we can see right away that he's standing by himself. The reason he would have been standing by himself was because he wanted to avoid being defiled. 
by the others that are there in the courtyard. If he sees, if there's someone there in the courtyard area that is um, unclean for some for whatever reason, and he were to even touch their clothes as they are mingling through the crowd, then he could have been defiled. So he's standing alone, off to himself, to avoid being defiled. Standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then verse 12, he goes on to say what he does do. He fasts and he gives tithes. So have you ever heard a sermon that was hidden in a prayer? This is one of those sermons that were hidden in a prayer. I've, you, I've done that myself Yeah, quite often. You sort of sneak a little sermon into the prayer. That's what the Pharisee is doing. It is, is his, his prayer to God is almost as much to be heard by God as to be heard by those around him. He is sort of uh, singing his own praises, so to speak. But um, he goes on to tell, to, to thank God and to thank God for certain things. Um, which reminds us, I guess, as we begin thinking through his prayer, the only thing worse, I guess, than being an adulterer is being proud that you're not an adulterer. Or the only thing worse than being an extortioner is being proud that you're not an extortioner. Or the only thing worse than being a uh, thief or a murderer is being proud that you're not a thief or a murderer. He's certainly proud that he's not. And he thanks God that he's not. So let's look at his prayer. He, he is going to say um, three things about himself that I think are important for us to see. Now, we don't have any reason to believe that what the Pharisee says about himself is not trustworthy. So when he says, first of all, he's going to speak about his morality. He's going to speak about his upstanding morality. And we have really no reason to believe that he's lying. He says that he is um, not an extortioner. He doesn't steal from his employer. He doesn't cheat on his taxes. He's not unjust. He's not an adulterer. He's faithful to his wife. Um, and he probably could go on. He, he is, for all we know, speaking the truth about the outward behavior of his life. And that outward behavior is something that we would call rather moral. Um, so the, the, the recognition of his life is a recognition that this is a outwardly moral person. And we know that, that would go, of course, hand in hand with the fact that he's a Pharisee. So first of all, he says to God, there's a, there's a morality about my life. Secondly, he um, recognizes the fact that his life is very religious. He's devoutly religious. Look at what he says that he does. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So his life is also devoutly religious. We were speaking earlier about the importance of corporate worship. He would have been a person that never missed corporate worship. Um, but beyond that, he goes even, even beyond what would be expected of the normal child of God. Um, he mentions that he fasts twice a week, which is an extraordinary amount for a person to fast. Uh, the Old Testament, um, you may be aware of this, that the Old Testament prescribed one fast for God's people all year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. God's people were to fast on the Day of Atonement, and beyond that, God certainly didn't limit how much they would want to fast, but that was the only prescribed fast, was one day a year. The Pharisees took that prescription, and they took it much further than that. They, um, they prescribed that they not only fast one day a year, but they prescribed that the three major feasts of the year they would fast the two days prior and the two days after. 
So uh, the three major feasts, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Tabernacles, I think, those three feasts, they were feast days, but the two days prior and the two days following, Pharisees would fast those days as, those days as, uh, as well. So that added another 12 days per year of fasting. So the Pharisees have increased God's prescription 12-fold. But this Pharisee says that beyond that, I fast twice a week. The Jewish calendar was, is, was a, still is a 48-week a calendar, being a lunar calendar. So he increases God's prescription of fasting 96-fold, which is extraordinary. Now, is there anything wrong with fasting 96 times a year? It depends. It depends on why you're fasting and what you think you're accomplishing when you're doing that fasting. So he goes far beyond God's prescription. And, and in addition to that, um, when the Pharisees would fast, their fast was particularly harsh. They would also refrain from water and other liquids. So I'm sure that we probably also have all fasted. And when, we, when you fast, if you're like me, boy, the liquids are really important just to kind of get something in your stomach so that it's not completely empty, particularly the first several hours of that fast. You kind of get some water in there and you're not quite so uh, rumbly, growly down there. Well, the Pharisees would refrain from even water. So he's taking God's requirements, God's prescriptions, and going well beyond that. Again, nothing necessarily wrong with that. Also, not, nothing necessarily right with that, depending on the motives and the heart of the person doing that. Beyond that, he also tithes. He tithes everything that he gets. God's word had prescribed that, um, that he was to collect the tithes of all the, the grain, the oil, and the wine of the people. But this Pharisee says, I do more than that. I tithe from everything that I have, everything that I get. The Pharisees also doubled God's prescription for a, scrap, for a tithe from 10% to 20%. So he's taking the prescription of God's people for, his, for, um, for what his people are to do in terms of fasting and tithing, the outward religious devotion of his people, and he is um, doubling, tripling, quadrupling, incredibly increasing what he is doing as outward religious devotion to God. So first of all, he's very moral, outwardly moral. Secondly, he's very religious, religiously devout. But also look at the third thing that, he's, that we see about himself. Not only is he moral and not only is he religiously devout, but he also recognizes the source of his outward morality and his religious devotion. He begins by saying, I thank you that I am these ways. So he recognizes that the source of his morality, the source of his religious devotion is God. Why do we thank people? Why do, you, why do we say thank you? There's a certain element of politeness about that, but the basic reason that we thank is to acknowledge that this comes from you, right? Uh, Brad brought casseroles this morning for our breakfast. And I didn't thank Dustin. Dustin, thanks for bringing those casseroles, right? Because they didn't come from you. You, you thank the one who is the source of a, of a gift or a compliment or uh, a recognition or an honor or whatever it may be. You thank the source of that. 
And again, we have no reason to believe that as Jesus is putting these words in the Pharisee's mouth, we have no reason to believe that they're false words, which would lead us to believe that this Pharisee, not only is he outwardly moral, and not only is he outwardly religious, religiously devout, he also recognizes that the source of his morality is God. That God has put in him the ability to act morally, the opportunity to act morally, and the desire to be moral. He recognizes that those things have come from God. He's not, uh, to use one of those big theo theological words, he's not um, a Pelagian. A Pelagian was somebody who, um, who believes that the power to please God is within us. That if we are just, if we just try hard enough and focus hard enough and put our nose to the grindstone, then we can please God. That's, that's Pelagianism. He's not one of those. He recognizes that the source of his morality is God. God has blessed him with the desire to please God. God has blessed him with the opportunity. Not everyone, in fact, the majority of people in Jesus's culture did not have the opportunity to be as outwardly holy as the Pharisees. Due to their occupation, maybe they had an occupation that rendered them unclean. Maybe they worked with dead animals, a tanner or something. You know, there are all sorts of situations in life in Jesus's day that prevented people from being as outwardly devout as Pharisees. So this Pharisee recognizes that God has given him the desire, he's given him the opportunity, and he's given him the ability to be outwardly moral. He has, uh, for all that we can tell in the passage, he, he doesn't succumb to the sin of adultery. It's not to say that he doesn't lust after uh, those who aren't his spouse, but it is to say that unless Jesus is putting false words in his mouth, it is to say that he, he doesn't fall into the sin of cheating on his wife. And he recognizes that the ability to be faithful to his wife is something that has come from God. So what's his problem? What's his mistake? His mistake is not that he thinks that he's the source of his goodness, of his righteousness. His mistake is not thinking that he is able to please God on his own. His mistake is thinking that once God has done that work in him, that he can then trust in that instead of trusting in the one who has done that work in him. This is what I mean when I say that Jesus is making a very precise distinction in this passage between the one who is justified and, as Jesus says, the one who's not justified. Look again at verse 9. Here's the problem. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Their trust, their, the basis for this Pharisee's relationship to God is not that the Pharisee is um, legalistic in thinking that... Um, if he keeps all these rules and, and does all of it, that he himself is producing his own righteousness. His problem is that he sees that God is the source of his goodness, but after God has done that good work in his heart, he then sees the ongoing 
work of morality as the basis for his relationship with God instead of the grace of God that not, not only begun that work in him, but continues it. Do you see the distinction? It's it's almost feels like we're splitting hairs, but I think the, the text will show us that this is Jesus' intention. We're going to look at a couple other things that the text will show us, and I think that it is Jesus' intention to show us the difference between one who recognizes God as the source of morality, but then bases the relationship with God or trusts in that work of goodness in them as, a, as opposed to continuing to throw themselves upon the ongoing mercy and grace of God. So let's, let's uh, kind of flesh this out and see how, how, um, how this plays out. So he, he recognizes, I thank you. Here's what I thank you for. That I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner, an adulterer, or unjust. Is he right to thank? Yeah, he's absolutely right to thank God. So should we. We should thank God that we have not fallen into the sins that God has prevented us from falling into. But that instead God has, like with the Pharisee, God has with us placed within us a desire to please him, the ability to please him, and the opportunity to please him. So he's absolutely right to do that. Um, and even... He says, I thank you that I'm not even like this tax collector. But here's what I do. Okay. Notice, take note of what the Pharisee believes. Because I think it's helpful to just sort of inventory what the Pharisee does believe. First of all, he believes in God. He believes that there is a sovereign creator God. He believes that that sovereign creator God is of the same character as the scriptures reveal him to be. He doesn't, from the text, we're not shown any sort of false belief that he has about God. He believes in God, that God is the creator, and that he is a sovereign, just, uh, holy, forgiving, uh, loving, kind God. All the things that we would affirm that God, that the scriptures show us that God is. So he believes in God. He also believes in the scriptures. Because otherwise, how would he know these things about God? So he believes in God. He believes in the scriptures. He also believes in prayer, doesn't he? And that's why he's here. He believes that God is a God who hears prayer and desires and, in fact, requires us to commune with him. So he believes in God. He believes in the scriptures. He believes in prayer. He believes in the fallenness of man. Clearly, he's, he's bringing attention to some fallen attributes of people in his life that he sees. He's recognizing the fallenness of man. Um, he's not asserting that he himself is without sin. You know, the Pharisees were never people that believed that they were without sin. They did believe that their sin was less than others and that their goodness would atone or would make up for their own their their own minimal sinfulness in their own mind, but they never believed that they were without sin. So he believes in the fallenness of man. He also um, believes in the forgiveness of God. All of those things, if if we combine that together with his outward life, with his religious devotion, with the morality that others see in his life, and I dare say, if we were to encounter that person today, 
that would be a very convincing follower of Christ in many ways. A person who affirms the scriptures, affirms prayer, affirms the fallenness of man, affirms the forgiveness of God and our need to seek his forgiveness, affirms the scriptures, is moral in his life, and is religiously devout. Now keep in mind the purpose of the scriptures is never, or the central purpose of the scriptures is never to give us tools to assess other people, but it's to give us tools to assess ourselves. So as we see all those things, we're reminded it's not just what you believe. Okay, We have, we like to put it in words like this, and, and we're not wrong to do so, but we like to say it's all faith. It is all faith. Right? It's not all faith in that sense. He believes all the right things. There's nothing faulty about his theology. What's lacking is repentance. He has the faith, but his heart lacks conviction of sin and repentance and the need to find forgiveness. Okay, so again, the purpose of the scriptures is not mainly for us to assess other people, but to assess ourselves. So the Pharisee looks inward. And looking inward, he's pleased with what he sees. And then he turns to God in thankfulness out of pleasure over what he saw in himself. The tax collector, on the other hand, is going to look inward and he's going to be very displeased. And he's then going to turn to God out of displeasure in what he saw in himself. And his prayer to God is going to be quite differently, quite different. So verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, notice they both are standing by himself. The Pharisee is standing by himself for the reason of not defiling himself. The tax collector standing by himself, we would assume just because of his desperation, just because of his brokenness. He's, he's a picture of a man that's broken in spirit and broken in heart. And if you've ever been there, then you you, you kind of just want to be by yourself. You just, he's just like off to himself in his tears and in his brokenness. He, he, he's More than anything, he's not even noticing the people around him. And he's just sort of doing his own repenting, praying thing over there to himself. But they're both off to themselves. But he stands far off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. We probably, our tradition of bowing and closing our eyes probably has a lot to do with this. The Old, the Old Testament picture of prayer, more times than not, is a picture of looking upward and standing and arms uplifted. The New Testament picture of prayer is more of a bowing. Not that either are correct or incorrect, but we probably get a lot of our theology of the bowing from, from this passage here, where the tax collector doesn't even look to heaven, but instead beat his breast. So he's beating his breast. What's in his breast? His heart. Which is the source of what's distressing him. What's distressing him is what's in here. It's like he's, it's like he's wanting to hit He's beating what's in there. The beating of the breast is something um, that existed in Jewish culture 
it would be sort of this outward sign of despair, of, uh, of extreme distress. But it's interesting that it was always performed by women. That there, there are, in fact, there's no Old Testament examples of anyone beating their breast, particularly men. But in Jewish culture, there are no examples of men. It was sort of a woman, womanly thing to do, that women would beat their breast at funerals or the loss of loved ones or whatever. But it was something that, that women did and not men. It's interesting that there is only one other biblical instance of people beating their breasts, particularly men beating their breasts. And interestingly enough, it comes to us also from Luke. If you want to flip over in your Bibles to Luke 23, you probably are familiar with, what, with what's happening in Luke 23. Look at verse 48. Luke 23 and verse 20 and verse 48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, that spectacle is the cross. All the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. The only other example that we have in Scripture or in, in Jewish cultural history of men beating their breasts. So the despair, the despondency of this man is something that otherwise takes something like Golgotha to inspire within people. His level of self-loathing, of despair and distress is at the level of people at the foot of the cross when they realize we just killed God. So Jesus is, is painting, as he all often does, he's drawing a picture of radical extremes. The Pharisee and the tax collector. The pride and the utter humility. The um, outward morality and the outward immorality. The, um, the looking upward and proclaiming thanks after looking inward and being happy compared to the looking downward and beating the breast after looking inward and saying, oh my, I am the sinner. You may have noticed. Does anybody's translation read that way? Uh, mine doesn't. Mine reads, he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Does anybody else's read differently? I'm not sure why. That is a definite article. It's not an indefinite article. I'm, I'm not, honestly, don't know why translators will translate that with an indefinite article. Because the Greek is certainly a definite article. I am the sinner. You are the God. I am the sinner. I'm not just a sinner. You're the God. I'm the sinner. As far as uh, this tax collector knows, there is no sinner like him. Like Paul will say to Timothy. I'm a chief because there may be people that sin in worse ways, but there's nobody whose heart I know like my own. And so therefore I am the worst sinner that I know. And that's his words. I am the sinner. So um, let's take a look at something else that happens in, in the passage. And I think this this will help us to see that we're not splitting theological hairs when we say that Jesus is making a distinction between one who trusts in the working out of morality that they recognize comes from God, as opposed to one who falls continually upon Jesus and Jesus alone. 
Okay, and I, and I think that, that comes to us more than anywhere else in his words here where he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Um, I'm sure that you agree with me when I say that words mean things. And, and sometimes that means that we, we have to slow down and, and look at what exactly these words mean because that's the only way that we're going to truly connect to what God has for us is if we understand the words he wrote to us. He says, God, be merciful to me, this, this, uh, me the sinner. Um, does anybody's translation read differently? I, I don't think that... I think they all say merciful. That's not the word for, for mercy. Luke doesn't put into the tax collector's mouth the word for mercy there. Um, Luke, was, uh, Luke was an intelligent writer. And he knew that there was another word that means mercy. In fact, um, he uses it. If we look down the same chapter, look at verse 38 of the same chapter. This is the story of um, the blind beggar. Uh, the blind beggar cries out to Jesus, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's the word for mercy. The word that the tax collector used is not the word for mercy, but the root of that word means propitiation or atonement. So what he literally says is God Make atonement for me, the sinner. God, propitiate your wrath towards me, the sinner. God, be satisfied in your wrath. Let your anger cease towards me, the sinner. That's literally what this man said. That's why it's important for us to recognize the context. This prayer is being prayed while the blood of that lamb was still wet and dripping on the altar. They had just seen a lamb sacrificed. And they both are aware that that lamb is not literally atoning for their sins. They, they both know that that is a symbolic atonement, that that's pointing them towards the final atonement that will come. But the Pharisee prays, resting and trusting on the goodness in his life that, that he acknowledges is your work. Whereas the tax collector's prayer is, make that atone for me. Make that satisfy your anger towards me. Propitiate your wrath towards me. That's literally what the tax collector is praying. So I don't think we're going too far to make a distinction between the one who's justified and the one who's not justified in this sense. Propitiate your wrath towards me. Uh, now, the Pharisee is trusting in his morality and his religious devotion that he recognizes is a work of God in his life. The tax collector is trusting on their propitiation, the sacrifice, the appeasement of God's anger by way of a substitutionary sacrifice. Let's be careful here not to think, well, that's all the tax collector could trust in. Because the Pharisee had morality in his life, the tax collector didn't. So that's all the tax collector could do. Whereas the Pharisee, he in his life, has an outward showing of morality and 
out, this outward religious devotion and those, those sorts of things. The tax collector didn't have that. Let's be careful not to think in those terms. And here's why. Um, to think that, okay, well, they're both coming before God. There are different places in life. One has this history of following God in his life. He believes in the scriptures, believes in God, recognizes God as the source for this. The other doesn't. And he's coming to God just begging for propitiation and atonement. There, there are different places in their life of following, uh, of following God and um, being, God's, uh, being part of God's people. And so their prayers just sort of look differently. But both of them are in relationship with God. Okay? Let's be careful not to think that. That the Pharisee is trusting in what he has. The tax collector doesn't have that yet. Here's why. There's four words that come in the passage, that four words in the English, that will not allow us to think. That, and that, let me phrase it a different way. Uh, let me phrase it in a different way. Um, Jesus is not saying it's better to trust in Christ alone than to trust in the good works that Christ does in us. Jesus is not saying that one is just better than the other. He won't let us think that because look at verse 14. There's four words that come to us. And if we think about them, they, they hit us like a ton of bricks. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, and here it is, rather than the other. Jesus didn't have to say that. He could have left it open-ended by saying, this man went down to his house justified and then left it to you know the Pharisee. We're not sure where his heart is. We know he believes some right things and we know he's a moral person, but we're not sure where his heart is. Maybe he just needs to work on his pride. Instead, Jesus takes away that option by saying, rather than... The, in other words, one of these men is on their way to heaven and the other is on their way to hell. This passage is not just a passage warning us against pride in our hearts and warning us against um, thinking that we are holier than others and encouraging us to remind ourselves daily that we fall upon the sacrifice of Christ alone. This passage is far more than that. This passage is telling us there is one who is justified and there is one who is not. The one who is not justified is the one that he can go so far as recognizing the scriptures, the God of the scriptures, the fallenness of man, the need for forgiveness, all these things, even recognizing that whatever good is in me, God's doing it, and yet still not be justified as his heart trusts in the working of God as opposed to the atonement that God makes. Now I realize that sounds like a really precise division to make in our thinking. But I don't think the text allows us to do anything other than that, than to say, here's a person that in so many ways looks like a person that could be justified. And Jesus tells us unequivocally, this is the separation. He says, this one's justified, the other is not. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. We should think there of exalted, meaning 
a synonym for salvation. So just think, read that as, as though exalted is a synonym for salvation. Um, the one who saves himself will be condemned. The one who looks to God, looks to the atonement, looks to Christ alone, that's the one who will be exalted, who will be saved. Um, so that is the clearest, in my estimation, the clearest words that Jesus ever spoke about the substitutionary atonement that he would make. Paul will take that concept and really flesh it out for us. But as, as far as I know, these are the clearest words that Jesus ever spoke about penal substitutionary atonement. And his warning to us is, the one who does not look alone to the atoning work of Christ, anything else is outside of salvation. Anything that, that even recognizes that whatever good in me is God, even that does not save. It is only looking just to the atoning work of Christ. That and that alone is what saves. So, where we're left in the passage is how do I assess myself in that way? Because I think that this is such a precise thing that I, I don't think that we can meditate and get out a piece of paper and a measuring stick and measure our own heart and say, yes, I'm not trusting in the work that God does in my heart. I'm instead, I'm trusting in his sacrifice alone. I don't think that the human heart and the human brain are capable of doing that. But the passage never asks us to. Instead, the passage gives us two things to look for in our own hearts and our own lives that are warning signals to us that we either are, are trusting in ourselves or we are sliding into some sort of trusting in ourselves. And the two things it gives us are very plainly, number one, look to your own prayers. Clearly, they're, they're, the two men are praying very different prayers. Look to your own prayers. Listen to your own prayers. How, what is the substance of your own prayer? As you come before God, are you, um, are you crying out to Him? Uh, are the words of your prayer showing you and God that you're basing your relationship with Him on what Jesus has done? So look to your own prayers. That's one assessment. And I think one even even more clear than that is is um, to again go back to the problem. What was the problem in verse nine? The problem is that the that Jesus is speaking to those who are treating others with contempt. And I think there's really kind of the root of it. If in your heart you believe that you are in relationship with God, in part based on the good things that you're doing in your life, even if those things are, are begun by and powered by and driven by God, if you believe that you are righteous before God because of what you're doing, then you will be contemptful or contemptuous. That's the word. You will be contemptuous towards others. 
Sooner or later, there will be someone in your life that you feel contemptuously towards because your righteousness is based on something that they're not doing, that you're doing better than them. And it may even be that God's doing that in your life, but He's still doing it. And your life is exhibiting something that theirs is not, and that will produce a contemptuous spirit in your heart. On the contrary, if you know in your heart and you're basing your relationship to God on Jesus' sacrifice for you, then there is no basis for contemptuousness towards others in your life. So I think those are the two assessments. Look, listen to your own prayers and look to your heart. Do you Are there those in your life that you feel contempt towards when they fail God, when they... Um, may fall into sin in their life, when they just don't live up to your standard, do you feel contemptuous towards them? If so, then assess how you are basing your relationship with God. Is it on His sacrifice alone, or is it on His sacrifice plus something else? We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.